Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome back to Channel Journeys, and thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. You know, one really cool thing I'm finding in doing this podcast is that everyone I'm speaking to on the channel has such an amazing story. And today, you're going to meet a channel chief with an awesome channel journey. It goes from horseback riding in the pyramids of Egypt to swimming with sharks in the San Francisco Bay. Matt Reeves helped create value distribution as we know it today and has a great story about his evolving career as a distributor and the transformation of distribution. And he has some thoughtful insights on the nature and the pressures on channel sales versus direct sales. So listen along. This is a great one. Here we go. Hey, Matt. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Great to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me, Robert. It's my pleasure. Matt, you and I go back a ways, back to our aero days, I think is when I first met you, and we've stayed in touch since then, and we've both traveled a, a journey that goes up and down in the channel, and very happy to catch up with you and hear all about what you're doing today, and also taking you back, as far back as you want to go in your channel journey. I don't think that people want to go back to the dark ages, Robert, so we don't have to go back too far, but it is interesting, Robert, when you think of... Uh, you know, I think we met each other in 2006, 2007, when we were both still at Arrow. And, and so here we are 11, 12 years later, and I think we've both gone through a lot of education and experience in, in just 10, 11 short years. We sure have. Sometimes it feels like 100 years, and sometimes it feels like a, a blink of an eye. Yeah. Well, I, I, always <laughs> say that, I always say that a year in IT is like dog years, right? So <laughs> That's right. So... I know you as the VP of channels, the head of channels. How do you describe yourself of what you do to people who aren't in the industry? Well, that's, that's a great question because my, I've been married to my wife for 32 years and I still don't know, believe she knows exactly what I do. But really, the, it's, it's a lot of times, Robert, it's, it's really the company that you work for, right? So like for today, I work at Pitney Bowes and Pitney Bowes is actually a well-known name. What's not known is that we're actually in the software business and the software and the data business. And so trying to explain that can be can be a little bit of a challenging, but you know what, what I've gotten to is, is all the different companies that I've worked in since I left Arrow, everybody touches our products in some use during the day. Mm -hmm. So whether, whether it was at BEA when we were, you were doing something on the web, when, when I was at Sybase and you were doing something on the mobile device, when I was at SAP and you were using any kind of, any kind of order entry ERP system or anything that you might be back end process you might be doing, all these things are, everything that we do in the software business touches it touches everybody. I think a lot of people, once you explain it to them at that level, then then they kind of understand what it is what it is that I do. Yeah, I mean, how, yeah, that's how, a good way to you, put it. How, how do you do it? Well, I've learned just to tell them I work for the CIA. <laughs> I, I haven't tried <laughs> I, that, but I'm going to. <laughs> I seriously, I had neighbors in Florida who who thought that I worked for the government on some top secret job because I kept jotting off, and they never believed me when I tried to tell them what I did. Yeah, that's funny. I'm going to use that the next time, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we get into your, your channel journey, how about I'm going to take you through my lightning round of questions to get to know Matt a bit. Sure. So here we go. First question. 
Where's the most interesting place that you've either lived or visited? Uh, you know, Robert, that's 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 a great question. I get asked quite a bit because, as you know, I grew up overseas. But but yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to tell you that when I lived in Cairo, Egypt, and that's where I graduated from high school. I lived there for two years, and that was probably the most rewarding experience of my life and probably my most favorite place to live. What was that like living there? Well, so this was, again, back in the dark ages, but it was a... It was in the late 70s, so it was right after President Sadat had welcomed the American, the Western world into his country. He was making the overtures to make peace with Israel. And I used to go horseback riding out by the pyramids every Saturday. I graduated from high school underneath the Sphinx on the stage there. I had a chance to visit Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Cyprus, Greece, all these different countries. And if you're a history buff like I am, being in the cradle of civilization, it was just it was just unbelievable. And contrary to popular belief, the Egyptian people are some of the nicest people in the world. And I, I, I just loved it over there. What an amazing opportunity to do that, too, before it became such a war zone over yeah. there in many places. Well, it had been a war zone. And then it was during this period of so the, the second Israeli, the, the 73. Three war was over, and, and really, it was just a it, it was a great time to it was a great time to be in the Middle East because everybody wanted peace after so many years of war. And it's, it's unfortunate that today we're back into some of these same challenges, but it's it's still a great place. I had an uncle who worked for the State Department, and he lived over in that area. I think it was during the fifties and sixties, and they raised their family over there, and just amazing stories that they have to tell about it. Yeah, I, like I say, I've, my dad was over there in the oil business, and so uh, he was based there, and we did, I mean, he was doing business all over the Middle East. I got the chance to travel with him quite a bit, as my mother did, and then, frankly, at the American school, we used to travel, the, the basketball team, we traveled all the different American schools in the Middle East, and so the joke was, if you want to, if you want to see the world, join the basketball team. So, <laughs> well, it's either that or join the oil business. Yeah, I did that. You did. You joined the oil business. I did. I got. I got out of the oil. I got. So I joined right out of college. I got in the oil business from. So that was 1981-82, right at the height of the oil boom. And then, if you recall, maybe you don't. We had a real estate crash and the oil business crashed all at the same time, like in the 83-84. And so I got out of the oil business in 1985, I think. And then I got into the IT business in 1987. Matt, that is so funny. So it's all about timing, right? I, gradu- I graduated with a petroleum engineering degree in 1985. That's when I entered the oil business. So, <laughs> yeah, my first job was as a drilling engineer out in the Gulf of Mexico. I lasted for a year before they really had a serious, it was just crashing all around us. And there was Black Friday. It worked out well for me. They took me off the rig and put me into oil crew trading group. And that was my shift from engineering to, to business, and then I shifted into high tech from there. Wow, that is a that is a, a couple of degrees of separation there, Rob, because I used to do a lot of business in the marine business in the Gulf of Mexico. So wow, a lot of seismic work, mostly shallow waters on the coast of Louisiana, Alabama, and into Texas over by Beaumont and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it was a small world, and I, I tell you, it was a great it was a great because it was an outdoor job which I loved. And but when the when the crash finally came, it crashed and it crashed hard. You know, it, it's interesting because it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, and then uh, it really started off working with a fraternity brother of mine, 
whose father had a small IT company. And that's how I got into the IT business back in the mid 80s, 1980s. So and then the rest of it is, is history. So how did it shift getting into IT to you getting into channels, working with channel partners and, and indirect sales? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because amazingly enough, I always was in the channel business. So when I, when I got into, when I started doing this, I was working for a reseller. So this was a company called Longoria Industries. And we had, uh, we were reselling an application for mid-sized medical and dental clinics, right? So anywhere between five and 15 doctors. And so we spent a lot of our time calling on those kind of doctors and when Mr. Longoria, unfortunately, who was the owner, passed away, his family said, well, why don't, why don't you just keep on doing it and whatever you make, you can keep. And so I did that for, uh, for a couple of years and was really deep into, deep into a couple of large installations. And we were wise technology running SCO Xenix 386. So that's, I'm going to kind of really date myself using serial cards and deck 42, 43, or four, whatever the number was that the deck desktop emulators for the, for the systems. And that's how we set these things up and did that for about a year. And then really I outgrew myself. And so turned the company back over to a a couple of guys I was working. And then I kind of, I went over to, to the Tandy business products division, which I always say because it's just a fancy word for Radio Shack and the computer centers. And I did that, but again, only for about a year. And then the, the distributor that I used to buy all my systems from for the medical said, hey, we'd really like to have somebody come over and help us build our channel selling software into our large partner. So I didn't know what any of that meant, but it, it beat doing what I was doing. So in 1990, I went to work for this small company in Dallas, Texas at the time. It was called Horizon Technology. Uh, mm-hmm. I was a I was a 32nd employee, and we were selling Unisys sequent multi massive multi processing boxes, running Informix and Uniplex and all these Unix based uh, applications, and calling on partners. And so that's that's really when I started started in this in this career and dealing with partners, and hardly ever called on end users or anything like that for the next 27 years. That's interesting. So you started out as a channel partner, then you moved into distribution, and yeah. you had quite a long run in. I didn't realize that you had so much distribution background before I met you at Arrow. So, well, when, so, so Horizon, we ended up changing our name to Pro America in 1993, and then we became, a, at the time, what IBM called a managing industry marketer, which was essentially a distributor. And so the, our PEP exec, which IBM used to assign a senior executive to each one of their large partners, was a gentleman there in Dallas, Texas, by the name of Ian Bonner, and Ian ran the IBM Global Software Channels. And so he said, hey, I want, I want you guys to take IBM software into the mid-range. So we became, there was four of us. There was a Dickens Data Systems in Atlanta. There was a Pro America in, in Dallas. There was a, a small distributor out on the West Coast and then Sirius down in, down in San Antonio. And we were all given the opportunity to, to go build a business around that. And we convinced them to provide us some funding. And so out of that came the whole value distribution business model at IBM. Joe Ballou, who was the president of, of Horizon Pro America and myself, and, and a gentleman by the name of Jeff Longoria, we all put together this value distribution model where you could earn more margin based on the more value the distributor brought to the business. And literally, we started from $1 million in sales in 1993 to when I left Arrow, which was a, a variety of acquisitions later, that was a $300 million a year business. And it was all mostly all through organic growth. 
So it was a it was a heady time because if you recall, IBM in the 90s was going through a lot of cultural changes and a lot of cultural shifts and really moving from a direct company to a channel company. And, and we were lucky enough to catch the wave. And so, yeah, 17 years, 17, 18 years, I guess, in, in the distribution business. And I enjoyed every single day of it. And even more amazingly, I, I met just a tremendous amount of great people, people who were still great friends like you, Robert, all these years later. Yeah, what a that's a great ride, a long a long ride on that journey. Yeah, some 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 would say too long, and, <laughs> but and it, it was really because as as like with everything else, the business started to consolidate. So, for example, in 1996, Pro America, we we merged with Dickens Data Systems in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's how I ended up in Atlanta. And then, literally a year later, we got bought by Pioneer Standard Electronics out of Cleveland, Ohio, and they had created a distribution company called Keylink, and that was in '97. And so, from from '97 until 2007, essentially, I ran the software the the software business, and for a couple of years, I ran both the direct and the indirect business. Because if you recall. At the time, we had two. We had a direct resale, a direct selling team, as well as an indirect selling team. And we brought on. We had Oracle. We had IBM. We brought on BEA and some other ancillary products. But uh, I, I will say that I was very, very proud of, to be part of that team. I ended up with a lot of the people that that were part of that team that uh, that worked with me have all moved on to become senior leaders in different companies. And I take a lot of pride in. I take a lot of pride in the fact that I was able to work with them, and they were able to work with me. And took all the opportunities that they were given and ran with them and, and, have, and have done great, have done great work outside of, uh, of that work. So I always say that, that that's a good legacy to leave behind, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's always nice to see that. So I'm curious with that long perspective of working in distribution, what your view of distribution is today. It's obviously there's been a lot of consolidation and, and a lot of people are asking that question with the, the shift through digital transformation. So that's that. That is a great question, and and, I, and I'll tell you, I, I still believe that there is that distribution provides a tremendous amount of value to the marketplace in, in a couple of reasons. One is the I, they have the reach and the scale that some companies don't have, and when you so when you think about something as simple as how do I find a partner in Bozeman, Montana, who can help me go do something, right? So. Distribution, they, they know that stuff and they know it cold. And then they also, I, I believe that they're really adapting well to the changing markets. Many of them have built their own portals now where people can go provision on the cloud and then they manage all the all the stuff with Amazon or Azure or Google or these other guys. And so they're, they're adapting like everybody else. But if you look at them, they're also changing as well, right? So if you look at some of the big distributors, like I know Aero Electronics, while still their computer systems distribution business is a big piece of their business, they're transforming themselves into an IoT analytics company. Even though they still provide all the distribution services, both on the componentry side, as well as on the the computer side, merging all those things together is really, they're they're taking it to, to a different level. If you recall, Avnet divested themselves of their distribution business and sold that to Tech Data, but Avnet is still a component distribution business, and, and they have adapted their business model similar to what Arrow is doing. So I think everything has to morph, right? And, and the good thing is, is that the only thing that's going to consistently happen is that you're going to have to change because the market's going to change and how people want to do business is going to change. But you think of the amount of credit that these distributors put out into the marketplace, which I help keeps the wheels turning. I think it's a. I, I think there's a great. There's still going to be a great need for distribution as long as they continue to evolve with the market. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Matt. I think they've done an amazing job, actually, in a, in a very difficult market at adapting and, and transforming in themselves. And I definitely want to get some some of the folks from distribution on this podcast to, to talk about that. I think it'll be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, so I think there's a there's a bunch of people that we both know that you should get on this podcast, right? Because I'd, I'd like to hear what they have to say as well. Yeah, absolutely. So in your journey, anything particular stand out? I loved, do you remember the old, what was it? Was it Wide World of Sports? They, they had that great shot of the ski jumper, and it was the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, and the ski jumper that falls off the end of the ski jump. It was a tremendous crash. I remember. So he was actually, I remember he was actually, I think he was, I think he was Romanian. Cause I remember, cause they used to talk about all these things. Cause the agony, it was the agony of defeat. Cause I think that was like in the Olympics in 1972 or something like that in Austria. Or, I, I don't remember, but I remember, I remember that. I remember that vividly. And by the way, I used yeah. to love that show. I couldn't wait for wide world sports. Oh, me, me neither. Me neither. We're, we're definitely dating ourselves, but that was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, because I'm so, sure that most people on the podcast is like, what are they talking about? Is that like ESPN <laughs> or what? <laughs> exactly. Is, is that on YouTube? Yeah, yeah. I think it is on YouTube. So, as, a, as a matter of fact, I think you can go look at Wide World of Sports, and it'll be I on. may have to... I may have to pull it up and post that just to, as an attachment to the podcast. That's funny. So any, any thrill of victory, agony of defeat moments from your channel career that you remember? Well, you know what? That, that is absolutely, that is a, that is a great question. And I, I'll have to think about it for a minute. So I would have to say it was during when Arrow acquired Keylink. I mean, anytime you sit and you, you make decisions about organizational and, and how that's going to affect certain people. And I always look back on that as I probably could have done a much better job taking some other factors into account as opposed to being trying to be a more of a corporate citizen to the acquisition and integration of the two companies. And so I look back on that as if that, if that was one, as, you know, I, I probably could have done a much better job back then. But hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Because here I am looking at that, something that happened uh, literally 10 years ago, and I'm probably much wiser now than I was back then, or at least I'd like to think so. And so it could be, I may have made the best decision I could at that time, but looking back on it, I, I wish I would have done some things different. But even though it, it was a, a defeat, I always believe that a man's character, a woman's character, anybody's character, comes, it, it comes out when, when times are tough, not when times are good. And so, so I'd like to think that I learned from that and, and I moved on. Do you think that people who work in the channel, if you're going to be successful, you tend to be the type of person who just loves to learn because you have to be on a constant quest for knowledge because it's not just technology and things changing around you. It's just every day is different and you're constantly learning from it. Well, that's a great comment, Robert, because, you know, one of the things that, that, I've, that a lot of people need to learn is that channels is all about influence and direct sales is all about command and control. So when you're, when you're and if, think about it, if you're a distributor, you're actually two steps away from the direct sale and you're in between the vendor and the partner who's selling. And so there's, you, you have to manage all both of those relationships a lot of times on the same opportunity. Because everybody has an, you know, and so your ability to be able to to learn and to manage and watch all that stuff really, because you have to be able to influence people to do the right thing, and the right thing is what's the best thing for the for the partner, for the customer, and for the vendor. And a lot of times those those things don't line up, and so you have to be very very adaptable, and you always have to be willing to learn, and you always 
Even more so, Robert, you have to be willing to listen because some of the best ideas that I ever heard was just sitting at a table and listening to people talk about, boy, if we could do something like this, I could go do this. And taking that and then running with it and then finding out that they were absolutely right. So I think that, that you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is the, you have to be the ultimate in flexibility. You do. You do. And at the same time, you often have to stand firm, too, and find that right balance, particularly when you're having those conversations with the direct sales team and how, how, yeah. how they can work with partners. And you said something really interesting about direct sales is all about command and control. And last week I was interviewing Rich Blakeman, who wrote a really interesting book called The Hybrid Sales Channel. And we were talking about direct sales, how for them it's very difficult because they want to control everything. And the thought of giving up that control to a partner can many times be very difficult for them. Well, it, it is because, but, but I also, since I've managed direct sales people since 2008, I also understand why. Right? And it's, it's not anything other than the fact that they're being held accountable. And nobody likes to have a being taken out behind the woodshed because you missed a forecast because a channel partner didn't do something that, that you thought they were going to be able to go do. And I think that that's where, the, again, that's where the whole influence piece has to come into it because when, when a direct sales and their leadership is on you daily to get this deal done and then for whatever reason doesn't happen, I mean, that. That, that's an effect, and, and nobody likes nobody likes to be in that uncomfortable position. So a lot of times, well, here, if I just go do it myself, then I can control it. And while, again, I don't disagree with that, at the end of the day, that's not scalable. right? So you, you can't scale that model because as a sales rep, you can only manage two or three deals at a time. And if you're trying to hit ever-increasing larger quotas, then you have to have a partner ecosystem that you can count on to get stuff done for you, which means you have to be able to manage it. And I think a lot of that's where a lot of direct sales and what I try to what I when I work with the folks here is I try to get them to understand is that it's all a matter of, you know, you're actually the sales manager. So how do you how you want to interact with these partners is really up to you. But trying to go in there and taking the deals direct isn't going to fix your problem because you can't scale the model. That's right. That's right. And then it comes back to trust. And how do you get that sales rep to, to build a relationship and trust that partner? And, and that happens over time and it happens. Oh, and people are, you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of times direct salespeople expect it to happen overnight and that's just not the way it works. <laughs> no, it takes time. I, it's like, I tell reps, I said, how long, how long have you been at this company and how long did it take you where you really felt comfortable selling our stuff? And they say, you know, six, nine months, a year, whatever it may be. I said, so why is it any different for a partner? Why would we expect them to do it faster than us? I, and, I, and so a lot of times that, that gives them a cause for, to think. I said, well, I guess you're right. We have to train them just as much as we had to train the direct rep. And so and we try to accelerate it as much as we can. But really, at the end of the day, it's still, it still takes the same amount of time to get a partner ready as it does a direct rep. And I think some people would argue that it even takes longer. Yeah, it certainly can. You've got a whole layer in between and, and things that you're yep. competing against and that mindshare you're trying to gain to get them to focus on selling your product. Yep. Matt, but again, at the end of the day, I think it's, I think it's, but, but again, I, I will tell you that it's the only scalable way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious, as you look at your career, what do you think has helped make you successful? What's, what's any secrets to your success? It's those steak dinners or a morning jump in the pool or, or what, whatever it might be, whatever comes to mind. 
So I, I tell you, Robert, I've been fortunate in my career that I've had four, five really strong mentors. A guy by the name of Marvin Woods when I was at Tandy, a guy by the name of Joe Ballou when I was at Pro-America, another gentleman by the name of Jim Erickson when I was at Pro-America, a gentleman by the name of Pete Coleman and Bob, and then a gentleman by the name of Steve Capelli. And these are all people that have been, some of them are still in the industry, some are retired, but each one of these, each one of these people gave me an opportunity. And they gave me an opportunity to succeed or they gave me an opportunity to fail. And they provided all the support so that I could succeed. And so I've been fortunate in the fact that I've really had, and to these day, to, to, even to this day, I still talk to all of them, especially when I come across challenges that I may have and, and stuff like that. And, and then I've made some great friends in the industry over the years. And I mean, look at us. I mean, how many times did we meet over at Mary Alice at seven o'clock in the morning to go swimming? Right. And so I've been, I've been fortunate in all those. And then you come across different people across your lifetime and in the career that have had an effect on your life. And I, I think you should embrace those moments. It's funny, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Mark Taylor, the other day, and we were talking about at some point, you, you, you got to be able to, to sit back in and actually enjoy what you're doing. And so, because he had, he had just come back from, from an event in Vietnam, and he was actually thinking to himself, I need to go look around, and I, I'm here, so I should go enjoy the fact that I'm here and, and, and take it all in, right? So I, I think that that's really is, is the people that have taken the time to provide me the mentorship and uh, guidance that I needed. And I try to do the same thing with, with people who, that I work with. If, if they want my advice and they want my guidance or they'd like me to be their mentor, I, I take that responsibility with a great deal of, um, with a great deal of seriousness and, uh, and, and flattery that, that people would ask me to do that for. That's great, Matt. And that's my hope for this podcast, too, is that it's, this is going to be a way for people to connect. I think for the most part, folks in the channel industry, we like to help each other. We like to help people get introduced, whether it's to other people with vendors, with partners, whoever it is. It is all about connecting and making those relationships. Yeah, it is. It is. And I mean, think about how many, all the different people that we talk to on a daily basis that either if we haven't met them, we know somebody, we, we, we all have mutual friends. I mean, that's how we started off our conversation before we started the podcast. That's right. Right. Talking, talking about an old friend of ours that started working someplace else. So you mentioned swimming at Mary Alice. I think Mark used to join us there as well. So got to get you back to your adventurous side and what you like to do and why you like to swim with the sharks. Well, so, so this is one of these, this one of these funny things, right? So there used to be a gentleman who ran uh, channels in uh, North America at Oracle. His name was Judson Althoff. And so I think Judson's over at Microsoft now. And so one day I'm sitting there and Judson and I were just talking. I don't even know how it came up, but he talked about how he was going to do this swim from Alcatraz Island to Giardelli Square. And, and of course, I looked at him with this view of shock. of like, why would anybody do that? And I thought you couldn't do that. And anyway, so he told me the whole thing. And so I said, I, I think I want to try to go do that. So I looked it up. And uh, so I signed up for I signed up for it and with a gentleman by the name of Tim Ross who uh, who you may remember and so I trained really hard for it and so one day in July where it was 54 degrees in San Francisco I jumped out of a of a of a boat into the waters of San Francisco Bay and swam one and a half miles from Alcatraz to Giardelli Square and I got to tell you the reason why I did it was a to prove it to myself that I could but the second thing was I was also raising money at the time my mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so I was, I, I did it as a fundraiser. So I went out to all my friends and got people to donate money. And so that was the, 
about uh, three quarters of the way across, Robert, I'm thinking to myself, geez, this is really hard. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, I'm not about to let any of these guys that gave me this money give me a hard time. So, uh, so I finished it up and then I did it three more times. And I'm going to be getting ready to go do it again this coming summer. So it's, it was a great, it was a great deal of fun, and I enjoyed the training, and I enjoyed the camaraderie. And you know, I, I tried to get you and Mark to do it, but neither of you guys wanted to wanted to give it a shot. But I, I will tell you, it was a, it was a great time. Yeah, I, I love a challenge. I love adventure. I I really need to get out there and do it with you one year, just just to do it. Because it's something to be said when you said, "Yeah, I've done that." Right? And the good news is, it's not as scary as it sounds. There's a bunch of people all around you. And the good news is, even if you're just a mediocre swimmer, you're not going to come in last place. So that was, that was to me the driving, that was to me the driving, the driving thing. I just didn't want to be last, but the first time I did it was 54 minutes. And the last time I did it was 42. Wow. So, and the winning time is normally right around 31 minutes. And are are you lathered up in like whale grease to protect yourself from the cold? No, I'm in a nice warm (laughs) wetsuit. So you don't go old school on that one. I do not go. So, but the last time I swam, the winning, the guy who won it was 52 years old from Austin, Texas, and he swam in a speedo. Oh. And that was it. Oh, man. What's the water temperature? 20, 20, 29 minutes and 48 seconds. How- I mean, he had to be coming out of the water. <laughs> wow. Do you know what the water temperature is? It's normally anywhere between 52 and 55 degrees. That's, that's pretty chilly. It is. And so the, the hardest part is once you jump in the water, you get over, it takes about two or three minutes for the water in the wetsuit to warm up with your body heat. The hardest part is putting your face in the water when you start swimming. Yeah. But after about five minutes, your face gets used to it. It probably takes about eight or nine minutes for the island to actually start looking small for mm-hmm. Alcatraz yeah. to start looking small. But like I said, there's a lot of people out there and there's, if you need to rest, you can, but Really, once you kind of get in that, once you kind of get in that rhythm, it it really goes quick. We should make that like a channel challenge, swimming across the channel. We should actually, we should actually try through your podcast to get more and more people to sign up, and we'll call it the channel crossing. Yeah, the channel crossing. We'll call it the channel crossing. Channel, and, and then you can be, and 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 we can, we can, you can be part of the club. Yeah, exactly. The channel, the channel crossing club. I like. And, the people who put this on, you know, they do these, they do these swims all over the U.S. Because one year I, I didn't travel, I, I couldn't go out to the, I couldn't make it to the West Coast, but I did a one where we swam across the the mouth of the Potomac River. So we we went from Maryland to Virginia down by Fredericksburg, and that was a that was a great swim. That's a little bit longer. That was about 1.8 miles. They used to do one on the East Coast. I think they do one in Boston. I think they do one in Charleston. They do one down in San Diego. So they they got them all over the place, and they're they're absolutely they're actually a lot of fun. Well, uh, and like I said, you, you meet a, you meet a lot of geeks. So, <laughs> well, this might be the start of something, Matt. We're gonna have to talk offline and figure out how to do that. Love to, I'd love to, and we'll get Taylor involved as well. Yeah, exactly. Let's get him back in the water if we can drag him off the golf course. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Matt, it's been great fun catching up with you. I think we could talk for hours. But uh, is there anything that I missed? Anything you'd like to talk about that we didn't? You know, the only, the only thing, Robert, that I'd, I'd like to leave your listeners with this thought is, as, now you and I, you know, we've been in the business for a long time. And so there's, there's a lot of things that, uh, there's a lot of experience that, that we have, and there's a lot of experiences that we're still going to learn. And when, when I talk to people, I view that my, aside from hitting my number, 
that the most important thing that I think about is how, how do I pass on what I know and what I've learned to, uh, to the next generation of people that are coming up. And some of these young people that I've met are just unbelievably smart and intuitive. And I, I learned so much from them. And I, I hope that as people get older is that we take the, our role as mentors in the market more as seriously as the people that did for me. Because again, that, that is what has allowed me to sleep at night is to know that everything that I've done is because I've held myself to a high standard that these other people have taught me about. And so I'd, I'd like to leave people with that thought is always, you always have to be giving back to the people that gave to you. Yeah, that's a great point, Matt. Absolutely. And, and that's my hope too, through this podcast, but I don't want to interview just us old experienced farts, get some of these young, yeah. get some of the, the next generation on, on the podcast as well and hear what they're doing. Because as you said, they're very smart. They're coming up with new ideas and new ways of doing things. I, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to listen in. I, I will listen into those. All right. Cool. All right, buddy. Okay, Matt, have a great weekend. Yeah. You too. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Another great channel journey. One of my favorite quotes from Matt in today's podcast is that channel sales is all about influence and direct sales is all about command and control. I think that's a great thing to remember when we're looking at solving for channel conflict. You know, Matt and I, we used to swim together when I was training for triathlons and he was training for his Alcatraz swims. And now he's got me wondering if we really could organize a channel journey swim team to swim with the sharks and raise money for a charity. If you are at all interested, please reach out and let me know. That'd be a lot of fun to put together. Join me next week on Channel Journeys when I talk with a channel titan, Jay McBain. Jay is a channel analyst, an evangelist, and a prognosticator with fascinating insights on the future of the channel. Until then, make yours a great channel journey. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.